The cancer journey is unique for everyone. It's time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to Unspoken Cancer Truths with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to episode 37 of Unspoken Cancer Truths. I'm your host, Jen Cochran. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. This week, we're continuing our conversation, shining a light on all the challenges we face after a cancer diagnosis and into survivorship. I'm joined again this week by a panel of four breast cancer survivors talking about what survivorship really looks like. If you missed episode 35, we talked about diagnosis and the challenges of communication and relationships. This week, we're talking about surgery options, body image, chronic pain, and how we all navigate and manage these challenges. Last week, we talked a bit about the challenges we face as a newly diagnosed cancer patient and the inevitable information overload. We get diagnosed, and then we need to start making decisions that have long-term effects, often without a clear picture of what that might look like. I was talking with a lady recently who discovered in her 50s that she was BRCA positive, a new doctor knowing a bit about her heritage, but not having a lot of past family history to examine, asked if she'd ever been tested. And they decided to do it. When she discovered she was positive, she opted for a bilateral mastectomy and hysterectomy. Two months after her surgery, I asked how she was doing, and she said, Okay, I wouldn't have done anything differently. I know these surgeries reduced my risk of cancer by a huge percentage. I just wish that someone had told me that I may now have chronic pain forever. And I think everyone on this panel today can absolutely relate to that. This is definitely a topic we're going to be discussing today. Of the five of us, we've all had multiple surgeries and we all manage some level of chronic pain. When it comes to surgical decisions, depending on your circumstances, decisions need to be made close to diagnosis, and doctors don't always guide you in the process. Often, they give options, but they don't provide insights beyond the technical descriptions of what is available. And most of the time, they don't make suggestions, even if you ask. Sometimes doctors give you options based on their surgical expertise, the procedures they prefer or provide referrals to other specialists who they like to work with, not necessarily a person in your insurance network, or who's providing the type of reconstruction that you're looking for if reconstruction is being discussed. This is something I think is really important to understand and be armed with the right questions. And if you find you can't make the choices necessary, get a second, third, or fourth opinion until all your questions are answered and you feel comfortable. I've talked with many people who were struggling with their surgical choices and they just couldn't make a decision. Then they finally met with a different doctor who answered their questions, made them feel comfortable, and the right solution just presented itself in a really easy way. This is a topic that we'll be talking about later on in the episode today as well. LoveResearchArmy.com, formerly Army of Women, often have opportunities for survivors and those not diagnosed with breast cancer to participate in research that looks at how we make our decisions, whether it's based on value systems, body image, doctor input, recurrence risk, or perceived long-term risk, or the need for additional treatments based on a surgical choice. 
and met many people while in chemo who, like me, had surgery first, and they chose what felt like the quicker, less invasive option of a lumpectomy, only to later learn that now radiation was a required part of their treatment protocol, and they weren't feeling super happy about that. Something that was not required with a skin-sparing mastectomy and something that they just weren't educated on up front. What I love about the research that's being done in this area is that it's being done with an eye to help doctors be able to provide patients with the kind of guidance the thousands of people who are contributing to the surveys are saying they feel is really important if they were faced with such a decision. So please go to loveresearcharmy.com and sign up because whether you've had breast cancer or not, they have many surveys and studies and things that people can participate in in both categories. They're doing great work over there. Last week, I shared a bit about the flavors of breast cancer. On the panel today, you're going to be hearing a number of references to different surgical and reconstruction options, sometimes with a description of what it is and sometimes not. So here's a quick 30,000-foot overview of some of the terms you might hear today. Lumpectomy. The cancer cells or tumor are removed with enough of the surrounding area that we have clear margins. Clear margins means no cancer cells within a specified distance to the edge. If you don't have enough space, the margin is not considered clear. Mastectomy. These can be single, one-sided, or double or by both sides. More than 20 years ago, a radical mastectomy, which you may hear referred to, included all the breast tissue, the underlying pectoral muscles, and often sometimes portions of the skin. With every passing year, we know more, and we have more targeted surgical options. A term you may hear more commonly is skin-sparing mastectomy. This basically removes the majority of breast tissue, leaving the muscle, skin, and nipple intact. In these cases, depending on the type of cancer and proximity to the nipple complex, the nipple can be conserved or removed. It just depends on your circumstances. The next item is implants. This is getting more into the reconstruction side of things. So this has been a topic in the news as far back as my initial reconstruction in 2017 and had a bit of a resurgence this past year when the FDA finally pulled the plug on the teardrop-shaped textured implants that have been causing some challenges for people. Facts first, this was one manufacturer, one style of implant. There are many, many options for implants. It used to be that everyone receiving implants had them placed underneath the pectoral muscle to create a pocket for the implant to be placed. Over the past five plus years, some people now have the option to do implants over the muscle. You may also hear us refer to expanders. For some people, they place expanders immediately following mastectomy surgery and your final reconstruction is done later on. For some people, they can have the whole procedure done upfront. Expanders can be filled with air or saline, Fun fact, if they're filled with air and you get on an airplane, there is a risk the cabin pressure can cause them to deflate. The next three reconstruction options are referred to as autologous options. That means the doctor uses part of your own body to do the reconstruction of the breast mound, as opposed to an implant, which is a foreign object, so to speak. 
One thing to bear in mind is that muscles have jobs, and when you shift their location, they can no longer perform the job they were intended to do. So the first procedure is called a tram flap. A tram flap uses part of your abdominal muscle, and they funnel it up to the area of the breast. This particular procedure was very popular a decade or so ago. It's extremely rare today given some of the newer, less impactful options. The lat flap uses a portion of your latissimus dorsi muscle from your back. And while this is the largest muscle in the upper body and they only use a portion of it, it's responsible for a number of shoulder movements. So it's really important to understand exactly how this can impact your movement. And I do still hear a number of people being offered this surgery, so I I think it's still fairly common. Finally, the deep flap is probably the most common autologous procedure being done today if you're eligible for it. This surgery uses tissue, fat, and blood vessels from the abdomen. It's a microsurgery that they use to relocate those items from the abdomen to the breast mount. So that's a 30,000-foot view of some of the terms you might hear in our conversation today. I'm being joined again this week by Charlotte Schaff, Gemma Blassard, Robin McTagg, and Tanja Thompson. So let me introduce them. Charlotte lives in Arizona. She was diagnosed in 2018 at the age of 47 with stage 2A breast cancer. It was multifocal, multicentric disease. She had five masses taken out of her right breast. The tumors came in many forms, invasive, ductal, tubular, and lobular. Estrogen and progesterone positive, HER2 negative, with lymph nodes negative. You can hear our full interview in episode 17 of the podcast. Gemma Blassard was diagnosed with stage 3B HER2 positive breast cancer in 2013 at age 29. In May of 2017, she had a recurrence, making her a two-time breast cancer survivor. The recurrence gave her a unique perspective on private insurance versus the NHS in the UK. You can check out our chat about her journey in Episode 8. Robin McTague is from Richmond, British Columbia, Canada. She was diagnosed with DCIS ductal carcinoma in situ shortly after her 44th birthday in 2000. It is so interesting how, as advocates, we often think we know all the components of our diagnosis— And then we revisit those initial documents for something like this brief intro, and we discover new information that we weren't aware of. That was the case for Robin. As she was sending me her diagnosis specifics, she noticed that the DCIS was labeled as invasive micropapillary carcinoma. Then she looked up exactly what that meant. And it's a type of breast cancer that's quite rare. Only 6% of breast cancer cases are micropapillary. You can listen to our initial chat in episode 14. Tanja Thompson is a retired senior master sergeant in the Air Force. In 2004, while still active duty, she was diagnosed with a fast-moving cancer throughout both breasts. At the time, she was reasonably quiet about her diagnosis. At the five-year mark, a time that usually signifies a reduction in our recurrence risk, she found a suspicious lump. And after many tests with benign or inconclusive results, she insisted the lump be removed. That was an important demand on her part. The pathology determined that the lump represented three different varieties of breast cancer completely different from the initial type she had in 2004. From that time forward, she's become an advocate for screenings and teaching patients the importance of advocating for yourself. 
You can listen in on our conversation about her experience in episode 22. This week, we're continuing our conversation about the challenges of survivorship. We're talking about body image, surgery options, and the realities of chronic pain. After a quick break, we'll jump into this week's chat with the girls. Hi, Jen here. I hope you're enjoying the show. When I finished treatment, I discovered survivorship was way more challenging than I ever expected it to be. There are a lot of things no one prepares you for. I attended one support group meeting and knew that was not for me. The more people I talked with, the more I realized I was not alone. This podcast is a forum for people to share their cancer stories from start to present. And my Facebook group is a gathering space for people to find positive inspiration on the not so positive days. In a community of people who understand the challenges of this journey. So come on over and join the Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning, and be part of the conversation. When you see the question, how did you hear about us? Be sure to mention this podcast episode. I look forward to seeing you there. So we're back. I'm here with Robin and Charlotte and Tanja and Gemma, and we are talking about surgery choices and body image and chronic pain. And oftentimes all these things go together when we're talking about breast cancer and surgeries related to breast cancer. And the choices around surgery can be kind of challenging and we're not always guided. Sometimes we're just kind of given the options and then we just go from there. There's a lot of research actually being done in this particular area of how people make choices and if they, if people would prefer more guidance or more direction from medical professionals. So it's an interesting kind of area because I think there can be, we can get lost in that. I think having gone through surgery twice, the first time I had a lumpectomy and the second time I wasn't so lucky. I was quite forthright about it um, up until the point when he started drawing out what they were going to do to me um, for each option. And as a, as a consultant myself, when I'm talking to clients about options and I hear other people talking to clients about options, you very often hear the flow of conversation going, well, you could do this. Or you could do this, or you could do this, or you could do this. And it's that last one that's um, that they leave till last because that's the one you know they recommend. So going through all those options, I felt a bit overwhelmed. And I said, well, there's an awful lot there. And then I said, just looking at you from consultant to consultant, which one do you recommend? And he goes, well, you have to make your own decisions, but I could put, I'll put money on it that if you had implants, you'd be back in with capsular contracture if you went with this flap it would be you know it's this risk so I really think it's better if you just go with the DX flap and I said well you'll you know what you're doing um what and he started showing me the pictures of like some clinical photos of the different outcomes that other women had had um and I was like yeah okay if that's the one you think we need to do I'm okay with that outcome um let's agree on it it was kind of transactional (laughs) So it was quite easy for me because I treated it as a business meeting. Yes, that's uh, that's definitely as a consultant. And I was a project manager in, in a past life. So I was sort of the same way. 
except that I told my surgeon what my choice was when I walked in the door before she did the biopsy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what has been your most significant long-term challenge in regard to surgery outcomes? Tanja. Thank you. That is when you've gone through, let's like Jenna, gone through it twice, you know, your options get less and less. There's options that you would have had the first time that you would necessarily have the second time. So for me, the first time was a bilateral mastectomy, skin sparing, took nipples, all the above, um, end up having implants. Well, five years later, now I have cancer again. So what are my options? My options are not the same as it was the first time. And even on the research, it's like, how do you, and like you said, imaging for women is so paramount. It's, it's the number, you know, our hair and our, I tell people our hair and our, and our boobs are our crowns and those four, and, and it's imagery and everyone is different and everyone has an option of making the choices that is best for them based on the, on that particular time and the information that they have. So for me, I did a, I did a trans flat and where they took muscle from my left abdomen and tunneled it up basically to make, to make a breast. Well, just think about it. You're, you're removing skin and you're removing muscle and you're transferring it to a different location. Well, just like with anything else, you plant grass. It doesn't always grow, right? It doesn't always heal. It turns brown. Well, that's what ended up happening to me where I had skin, I had muscle carotid that did not heal, which in turn have multiple surgeries afterwards to make it look right, to make it not look so deformative that you can at least try to wear something low cut, which I can't do now. I mean, even with the multiple surgeries, but I think that is a big part when women think about recovery, when they think about, okay, you're going to take my breast. So what does that look like now? And for me, I say somewhat fortunate because I trusted my surgeon because he's the same one that did it the when I had the bilateral mastectomy. He's also the one that did the trans flap surgery. So, you know, I was my life in, in a sense was in his hands that I was really relying on him to make the right decision. And then to being in the military. You know, sometimes your options are not as as the same as everyone else. So you really have to trust or that individual gains your trust. So he gained my trust and I knew that he had the, my best interests at heart. So we were able to get through it. And I, I can say now that going through that, I'm a better understander. And if that's a word, I made it up. If not, and just this journey of what we call breast cancer and how imagery and how we feel about ourselves, not anyone else looking at us, but how we feel about ourselves is, is paramount. And at the end of the day, that's dependent. in it. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I, I joke, but I said to my surgeon, she was prepping for my biopsy and I said, 
I decided a long time ago, I'm just taking these off and getting an upgrade. Because I wasn't working with that much to start with. So I was, and I had three spots. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I was like, the left side's coming off. And I had a young doctor who was, who was only about five or six years older than me. And uh, so I actually, I was a little bit cheeky with him. I said, it's kind of, I'm kind of glad I've got someone your age doing this. And he kind of smirked at me. I said, because you know what looks good. (laughs) (laughs) And he just, he just smiled and walked off. (laughs) Yeah, it was funny. My husband, the night before... Or a while after I had met with the plastic surgeon, that was the one appointment that he didn't go to with me. And he said, this is a weird question. How do they know? Like you're laying down on the table. How do they know that everything's in the right place? And I said, oh, that's a great question. They sit you up on the table and everyone in the room discusses (laughs) if everything's in the right place. And he was like, oh, okay. Which I thought was hilarious that A, he was curious about how that all worked and that B, he was like, oh, okay, of course, of course, everyone in the room is going to be deciding (laughs) if everything's in the right place. It's interesting because um, I always was a very small breasted woman, like pretty much an A cup. And after having two boys within uh, two years I was like, I'm, I'm getting me some boobs. I'm in my forties. I am, I need some freaking boobs. (laughs) So I had an amazing plastic surgeon, a family friend of ours. They looked amazing. And so the day of my surgery, my husband took a picture of them for me. I asked him to take a picture because I'm, I'm never going to have boobs that look like that again. And sadly, I was right. (laughs) Because while I didn't go through chemotherapy, and I asked them, you know, I, I luckily already had enough skin that they could um, put the implants in as soon as I had the breast tissue taken out. Um, The radiation totally screwed up this side of my, my breast. So now I have, you know, the small, like, not small, but it's like, it's just a little rock right here. And then I have like a nice regular boob, no nipples. And the thing that really is frustrating to me now in hindsight is that I thought, well, you know, once the scars heal, I'll get those cool looking 3D tattooed nipples and everything will be okay. But now I'm looking at my boobs and I'm like, but they're not even the right, they're not even the same size. No, I have the same thing. Um, (laughs) I'm hoping to get a fat transfer, but I've decided not to go with nipples in the end. Yeah. Um, I was quite, that's a personal choice because I thought, well, if they don't do anything for me in terms of sensation or anything, and I'm still young, I'm 36, and um, I was 29 when I was diagnosed. If, they, if there's nothing there that can be useful, if you know what I mean, mm-hmm. um, then it, who am I doing it for? I'm, I'm doing it for you know somebody else and I and actually not myself because personally I've lost my relationship with my breasts so for me it doesn't really matter and I've found that actually generally you know part a partner I've been with he he just he doesn't bat an eyelid doesn't care I think that's at least for me my husband says all the time I don't care I still love you I love your boobs when I touch them I get excited that kind of stuff but for me mm. 
all I think about is this boob looks so different than this boob. Mm. I mean, it's, it's hard to get through that. Even with your husband telling you it's okay, because I can't get through it. I, I don't know if anybody else feels like that. <laughs> I think that's super common. I've actually heard that from other people as well. And I did not have radiation. I had chemo, but I did not have radiation. But I have started to have some contracture on my left side, which was my affected side. And which is interesting because I have another friend who also did not have radiation and she has the same. And she describes it as like one side's a softball. Mm -hmm. And the other side is normal. Right. I'm using air quotes here because <laughs> nothing's ever normal after <laughs> it's breast all cancer. relative. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> but it's yeah. interesting because my husband also says the same. Like, and I had skin sparing, and in February of this year, I had an adjustment done on the right side because I had had a lot of swelling on the right side, and my port was on the right side, and it was lower because of all the swelling initially. So my plastic surgeon was just going to pull everything up because I had more scar pain from my port because of that pressure of pulling. So, and then I had an interesting experience with the right nipple because that had been left and my left nipple had been taken off because the tumor was close to the surface. So they had taken the left nipple. So I had one and not the other, which I thought was super weird because no sensation, but the micro nerves sense cold. So it would respond to cold and warm. And I was like, what, what is this? Like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> and there's still the amputee thing as well. You know how amputees can still feel organs like I still have a memory of that yeah in a similar way so after having and then of course we're put in medical menopause so that when you're in your early 40s like all bets are off there's no predicting what's happening with that situation and we were on a trip and it had been a really interesting getting to the, we were on a cruise and getting to the cruise was ridiculous. And then the first morning we're there, I'm going to get in the shower and I'm like, what is going on with this nipple? And it just looked weird. Turned out like three days later, after not having anything for six months, I started a period and that explained what was going on with the nipple. So then I was like, um, we're adjusting this side anyway. Can we just, let's just take that off. Like, that's just freaking me out now. And there's no need for that. And it's not, it's not doing anything for me. So, which was great because my surgeon was like, sure. Which when I first started telling her the story of how it had looked weird, she was like getting a little nerve because. I had just seen my surgeon and my plastic surgeon a month before the trip. So in my brain, I'm like, if there's anything wrong, it just started, not a problem. Like, this is not a problem. I just saw my doctors. 
So then, of course, when I saw them again, when I got home, they were both like peeking in the door, like, why are you here? I just saw you. You were fine. (laughs) And my plastic surgeon just burst out laughing. And she's like, oh, yeah, I'm sure that for you, like, you you were freaking me out, telling me the story. But then she was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. So I was like, can we just take it off? And she was like, sure. So I didn't have any other incisions. She took that off, did the adjustment on the right side. The scar tissue that was underneath that nipple complex was so severe that it was caused, like, I couldn't touch my right side without burning, searing pain. And in storms, I would get like stabbing, like 12 to 24 hours before a storm, I would feel like I was being stabbed. And people would say, like I would see in forums, people would say, it's been five years since my mastectomy and I still get shooting pain. And I would say, start tracking because you're probably getting it on a beautiful day but the next day it's going to be bad weather. Like it's probably weather related, but if you can correlate it, you'll feel better. And it was amazing because I had that surgery on a Monday. It was like 30 minutes on Friday. We had a horrible storm. It was early in the morning. I got up my knee. I have a big scar in my knee. It was killing me. I touched my right side and I was like, oh, no pain. This is amazing. But it's that crazy, like, these are the unexpected things that happen. Can yeah. You, I'm seeing you shaking your head, Robin. I'm. Oh, yeah. I'm still going through it. I mean, I've had five surgeries and I'm on a wait list for another one. And, you know, it just changes everything. When I first was diagnosed, it was either radiation and partial is what they called them then. And then the full mastectomy. And it's like, okay, it's not that big. Let's go in and do the first one. Two weeks later, we didn't get the margins clear. Let's do another one. And then for me, it was really against the breastbone and right at the bra line. So the scar tissue was really difficult to deal with because being right on the bra line, getting rid of all the underwire bras, finding the sports bras and things I could wear. But my big thing was to be able to get back to the gym because I'd go to the gym every day at lunch from work. And in those kind of flimsy things, you'd see that my nipple was pointing straight down. And I was having a real challenge with seeing myself being able to fit into clothes. And I just wanted to feel like I could have a normal wardrobe again. So I was referred to a surgeon and I used to blame her a lot. I still am not happy about her. (laughs) You know, she didn't, I didn't feel I got enough information and there wasn't as much research out there then, but apparently 50% fail when you've had radiation. So I had the first implant and it looks terrible. Like there's a big line and a lump and it's not smooth at all. And it didn't drop into the socket like it normally was supposed to. And apparently that's common. And the other thing was when I went in for the consult, it was, well, don't you want the other one done? And I felt really offended. It's like, I'm not here to have fancy boobs. I'm here to feel better about myself and be able to fit into my clothes. 
And so then that one started to contract and I had problems being right-handed and it being on my right side, I was having problem with my shoulder and my whole side and working, doing mainly computer work at the time. It, I couldn't handle it anymore and had limited what I did physically. All I could do was the sit down recumbent bike. I couldn't get out walking anymore. And so here in Canada, waiting on wait lists, you know, it's an hour, an hour, (laughs) a year to get back to see the specialist if you haven't kept up that relationship. And then another year wait list for surgery. And so what she did is went and put it on top and that was fine for a while. And then I found a new surgeon and I just went in and said, you know, I'm having constant pain and it just, I don't know what to do. I just feel so uncomfortable all the time. I'm so tight on the side. And so she suggested a lat flap and I did the research on that. And it, there was no way I was going to do that. I'd had car accidents and I was just getting functioning back in my shoulder and upper back and to compromise it again, no way. So she was great. We had great discussions and she said, well, we got to think outside the box. And I said, yes, absolutely. And she said, what we'll do is go in and take out some scar tissue. And so she did that and it helped for a while. And she put in some fat to create a barrier so it wouldn't adhere to the chest wall again. And I'm still having pain and stuff. And now with all the implant recalls and I cannot get information on my original implant, the other doctor's office was, oh, it's in storage. And so this new surgeon has been requesting it and I still don't have the information because I didn't know if I could be in the class action lawsuit or not. And, but it was, I was one of the first ones in Canada. It was like the gummy bear kind of texture. So it was different silicone and thought to be safe. And I continue to have problems with my lymphatic system. And I really feel if I get this out, then it's going to be better. At least I can dream about that and sent that intention. So I'm on the wait list again. I saw her again last year about this time. And I said, I want it out. And she says, no problem. And she said, you know, we can either do the full mastectomy or I can, you still have some tissue on the top. We can just do a reduction on the other side and have the match. And, you know, you have time to decide. So I'm on that wait list. And of course, things are delayed with COVID. So we'll see. I'm hoping it's this year, but maybe it's next year. So that's an interesting topic as well that hopefully we'll be able to circle back on for a a future segment, how COVID is affecting the different uh, systems. And I know you're, you mentioned that you're in Canada. On average, how long is the wait for something like this when you are approved and now you're just waiting? About a year. About a year. So that's the common... Yeah, you can go to some, like a lot of women are getting explants now they're calling them. And I know there's a guy out in Abbotsford, I think he charges about five grand. And I know people are going to other countries and doing it and stuff as well. But I I really like the surgeon, my new one. 
And funnily enough, we're both Robins with a Y. <laughs> and uh, yeah, she's really down to earth. And so I'll, uh, I'll wait for her. <laughs> awesome. So was there anything that you wish you knew up front that might have made a difference? To let myself spend more time adjusting to my body image rather than thinking the answer was the implant. And I think part of it was because my own doctor said, well, you're not that big. You can't have an implant. And then so when I saw the specialist, she says, oh, yeah. But I think plus two, asking more about the size, like I think maybe if she'd put something smaller in and more around what you need to do to take care of it like more of the massaging and stuff so it doesn't get hard and whether that would have helped or not I don't know you know it's all in hindsight but I think some of those pieces where really spending more time looking internally like what is the reason for this are there other options and maybe it wasn't that important to have it right then and just kind of see how how things shifted over time. Remind me how long ago your original surgery was as well. I'm in my 20th anniversary next month. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. So yeah, and it's crazy how every year we're having more and more and more advances. The differences between what was offered and what was understood, I think, in that time versus now, even now, with you mentioned um, challenges with the lymphatic system, lymphedema is really, really downplayed. And as a person who creates a lot of scar tissue, I also have low-grade lymphedema and it's low-grade because I fiercely manage it and keep it in that place where it's low-grade. But it's something where we don't really, there's not enough research to really understand. And there's a lot of misinformation in that arena as well. Yeah. And I wore the sleeve for a year and a half and continued to wear it on flights and stuff afterwards for quite a while. And I had to argue with my own oncologist. He said, oh, you can't have lymphedema if you didn't have uh, chemo. And then an article came out in the newsletter from the cancer agency that you can have it with the radiation. And now it's like, you can have it no matter what, like there's no rhyme or reason to it, right? And you can have it years later. So yeah. like you said, there's all these kind of rules that don't, don't really, cancer doesn't really follow the rules. <laughs> it, it's so fascinating because your doctor said you can't have it if you don't have chemo. And my oncologist, when I had um, axillary recording and during my chemo, my cord started getting longer and then receding and then it would get longer and then it would recede. And because I had remediated my arm and I had full mobility eight weeks after my mastectomy, when I started chemo, I knew that it was my cord. I knew I could feel it below my elbow, and then it would not be below my elbow anymore. And I said to my oncologist one day, 
hey, I'm noticing that my cord, like week two after chemo is beyond, I'll wake up in the morning and it's past my elbow and my arm's really tight. And then I work on it and it recedes. And so now it's kind of back over my elbow week three. And he palpated my arm and like his eyes got real big. And he said, no one's told me this before. I said, well, of course they haven't because people at this stage, if they had surgery first, they didn't even know that cording was a thing. They just think their arm is tight. And he was like, oh, yeah, well, that's a point. (laughs) But it was interesting because he had not heard that reported before. So the whole lymphedema conversation is, it's a very interesting thing. For sure. So any other thoughts on this crazy topic of surgeries and body image and chronic pain, the unexpected challenges? I have just one other thing, and I don't know if anybody else, you're talking about the the lymphedemia. Yeah, lymphedema, yeah. I had frozen shoulder back when I had my first son um, because I kept carrying him with this arm and my arm literally froze right here. Yeah. And then eventually I got uh, over it through PT and a shot. But after uh, breast cancer, I started to get the frozen shoulder again because that's where my cancer was too, same place. Um, And that was something I didn't really expect or think would come back from uh, breast cancer. Um, But more people that I've talked to have said that they do have a lot of frozen shoulder issues uh, after breast cancer surgery. So I, to this day, have to, you know, constantly be stretching it. I have to do my exercises. I don't think I'll ever be able to reach exactly like I can with this arm. So that was something that was definitely unexpected. Yeah. Yeah. How many of you had a physical therapy consult after your surgeries? I found a really good, um, I guess she was, I can't remember if she was PT or massage, I think PT, but to find someone that actually knew about lymphedema and she was the one that helped me and got me diagnosed because Mm -hmm. the doctors were not helping. She actually measured my arm and said, yeah, you need a sleeve. And she could actually, actually work on the scar tissue where I couldn't, I found it was like nails on a chalkboard. I couldn't work on it myself. And then she left and I never found another one, but she was amazing. So in Europe, there is one lymphedema therapist for every 10,000 people. In North America, there is one lymphedema therapist for every 100,000 people. That was one of the first things as a massage therapist, I qualified to sit for that training, some medical training. And that was one of, I did that in the fall of 2017. My cancer treatment was happening in 2016. I was very lucky that my uh, radiation oncologist, his wife is a physical therapist and she specializes in breast cancer patients. So I was so lucky because my frozen shoulder was coming back. I would go and see her at least once or twice a week for a couple months. And it was the best thing ever. I laid there and she literally just massaged all the scar tissue and my shoulder. 
Oh my God, it was heaven. I, I would give anything to go back to that lady and have her do it every day. <laughs> you just lay there and chat and she's, oh, it was amazing. I'm so thankful for that. I don't think a lot of people think about that, but it's definitely something that, you know, when I meet somebody who's going through breast cancer, I let them know if you can find an option, find a way to have that with your insurance, do it because it will make some um, big differences. Absolutely. Absolutely. That wraps our second survivorship chat of October. While all of us have followed a path of promoting awareness and advocacy, we've all gotten here by very different paths. We chose to share more openly at different stages, and we all had different diagnoses and surgeries, yet we can all relate to so many similar challenges. One of the most interesting parts of this week's topic for me was how we all have a different relationship with our physical body than we had before our surgery. The topic of the 3D nipple tattoos came up. The leading tattoo artist in this area is located outside Baltimore, Maryland. Now, as I was discussing my surgery earlier this year with my doctors, one suggested she could send me to see him once I had my second nipple removed. And I said, if I was going to get a tattoo, I was going to see his business associate who specializes in larger, more mural-like tattoos that replace scars from surgery with a beautiful image. For me, that resonated more. I will say, I know several people who've gotten the 3D nipple tattoos, and while they were really not expecting it, seeing themselves in the mirror when the work was done moved them to tears, and how they felt about their reflection was completely elevated. Next week, we'll be back talking about the impacts of all our treatments on our brains and the long-term memory challenges that no one prepared us for. I hope you'll listen in. In the meantime, come on over to the Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning, and join us as we continue the conversation. As always, thanks for listening and have a great week.